Good evening. I'm Harvey Perlman, Chancellor of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to the first lecture of the 2009-2010 season of the E.M. Thompson Forums on World Issues. This forum, founded by and named in honor of E.M. Jack Thompson, is designed to engage Nebraska students and Nebraskans in issues affecting the world around us. This 21st year of the E.M. Thompson Forum will concentrate on an ancient civilization and a rising global power, China. We are deeply grateful to the Thompson family and the Cooper Foundation for their continuing support of this series. We also thank the LEAD Center for its generous support, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications, Cable Channel 21, KRNU Radio, the University Bookstore, and the special collaboration with the University of Nebraska Confucius Institute. Before I introduce tonight's lecture, I'd like to remind you of our next forum for the season on Tuesday, October 6th at 7 p.m. here at the lead. That presentation will be by Kaiser Kuo, a noted journalist entitled Shouting Across the Chasm, Chinese and American Netizens Clash in Cyberspace. That forum is sponsored by the Lewis E. Harris Lecture on Public Policy. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of the speaker. Dr. Lloyd Ambrosius, the Samuel Clark Waugh Distinguished Professor of History and Chair of the E.N. Thompson Forum will moderate the question and answer. Please write down your questions on the cards provided and pass them to the ushers. This evening's lecture, China's Trade and Soft Power Relationships with Asia and the United States, Reason to Worry, is being presented by Doug B. Ryder, a fifth-generation Nebraskan Doug is president and CEO of the Asia Foundation, an international non-governmental organization with 17 offices across Asia dedicated to promoting peace and prosperity in the Asia-Pacific region. He joined the Asia Foundation in 2004 following his resignation as U.S. Representative for Nebraska's first district, a position he held for 26 years. While in Congress, he co-founded the Congressional Executive Commission on China and chaired a task force on the transition of Hong Kong and the House delegation to the 40-country NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Prior to his election to Congress, he served in the Nebraska Unicameral. He holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Nebraska and an honorary degree in Humane Letters. He also holds two master's degrees from Harvard University. Please help me welcome back to Nebraska, Doug B. Ryder. Good evening. It's nice to know somebody's out there in that black space. Thank you very much for your kind welcome and for your introduction, Chancellor Perlman. Uh, before I get underway, I'd like to introduce my wife, Louise, who's here, two-time graduate of the University of Nebraska, and my son, Eric, who is a customer executive, a client executive for IBM in Omaha, and also importantly, the father of our only grandchild. So they're here with me today, and we're happy to be back in Nebraska. I want to compliment We indeed are. And uh, last night we had a little bit of a gathering of some of the people that helped me in the congressional campaigns over the years in so many ways and on the congressional staff. And John Peterson is here helping me this evening. He's an executive assistant uh, to me uh, for research. And he's from Hoponka, Nebraska, the only congressional staffer that went with me. So thank you, John, for all your help. I want to compliment the sponsors uh, of the current lecture series. It's really quite important. I felt some time ago that what happens to Asia is far more important to America's future than anything else that happens in the world, and that the trilateral, bilateral relationships among China, uh, Japan, and the United States are the most important bilateral relations for America's future. You heard a bit about uh, the foundation that I had. We are a development organization. We have 17, and now, Chancellor Perlman, 19 offices in Asia. We have about 700 people. 80% uh, of them are Asian nationals working for us in governance, rule of law, civil society. We train election workers. We do women's empowerment. We do anti-trafficking work. We do economic reform and development. We have a huge books program. And we have a charitable affiliate called Give to Asia. So it keeps me busy, and I've always admired the Asia Foundation, and I look at it as just a continuation of my public service. 
We actually have no direct focus on trade issues in the Asia Foundation, uh, but nevertheless, I follow this issue as one of the key things I did in Congress and had some involvement in it. Uh, we are by no means an organization that focuses only on China. It's our fifth or sixth largest program, and it's not quite as broad as some of the programs areas in which we work. I did over 950 town hall meetings uh, when I was a representative for the first district. I think that may be a record. It certainly is for uh, most of my colleagues. Uh, and I tried to uh, be candid, prided myself on candor to build trust with my constituents. But I have to tell you that uh, tonight there will be a limit on my candor. Uh, we are unique among non-governmental organizations in that we get about 12% of our funding from direct U.S. congressional appropriation. We're the only one. Uh, we're 55 years of age. That authorization goes back to 1983. So I want to keep good working relationships on both sides of the aisle and in both houses. And as a matter of fact, I promised, I volunteered to my board of trustees I would give up partisan politics forever. So there'll be a limit. Now, what I intend to cover this evening, uh, first of all, uh, as the first speaker in this lecture series, a few minutes in establishing a very basic common information groundwork on China. Two, to look at the dimensions and nature of China's trade with the world, the U.S. and China's neighbors. Three, relatedly, China's role as a center for global manufacturing process, which I think may be one of the surprises for many of you. Fourth, China's soft power, including its foreign aid and its foreign investment strategy. And fifth, some concluding comments on the implications of China's foreign trade and soft power for the United States of America. Now, I'm going to use a number of uh, slides here, PowerPoints. Uh, when you talk about trade in particular, but also some aspects of soft power, you've got to deal with numbers. You must deal with numbers. So don't be too concerned about those numbers. If you read them there, I'm going to point out a few that perhaps you may want to remember, but just look at the graphics, the trends, the bar charts, and that'll give you a picture of what I'm trying to convey here this evening. And if you want more information, uh, these will be available on the website uh, for you to look at in the future. So first, I asked provocatively in the title of my talk whether China's increasing trade, really its full range of economic influence in Asia, and its growing soft power in Asia should be a reason for Americans to worry. You won't be surprised, I'm sure, to learn of dramatic Chinese growth in trade and economic influence in both Asia and the United States, although I doubt that many Americans know that much about the growth of the various forms of Chinese soft power in Asia, and for that matter, may not know about its even greater investment in soft power in Africa or the recent deployment of Chinese soft power in the Western Hemisphere. You're going to hear more about that from a future speaker, Mr. Bihar, when he talks about uh, China's policy and strategy with respect to the African continent. The important subjects I hope to bring to your attention today, however, are not the gee whiz facts about the amount of such growth in Chinese power and economic influence, but to raise for your consideration the question whether the emerging Chinese strength necessarily causes a relative decrease in America's influence in Asia, especially in East and Southeast Asia. Will Chinese emerging power even require a change in Sino-American relations and in American foreign and security policy? Uh, next, what's soft power? In the 1990s, Professor Joe Nye, then dean of the Harvard's John F. Kennedy School, famously coined this now widely accepted phrase, soft power. By that term, he meant to the ability to shape the preferences, policies, and actions of others organizations and countries through appeal, persuasion, and attraction. A defining feature of soft power then, according to Nye, is its non-coercive nature. Uh, next, in international affairs, soft power arises from the attractiveness of a value of a country which it expresses in its culture, its political ideals, its internal practices and policies, and in the way it handles its relations with others. Next, hard power. International hard power, in contrast, was viewed by Nye as the ability to coerce through a nation's military or its economic might, although today many scholars 
and politicians also characterize all the features of economic influence or power also as elements of soft power, and that's the way I'm going to use it tonight. Next slide. Third phrase, smart power. In, in 2008, a commission was established by the Washington think tank, the preeminent Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. It was co-chaired by Nye, a Democrat, and Republican Richard Armitage, a former Deputy Secretary of State for Colin Powell. It became known as the Smart Power Commission since it proposed recommendations on how the U.S. might better coordinate, strengthen, and appropriately deploy a combination of soft power and hard power. Uh, next. No doubt there are some people in the audience who are real experts on certain aspects of Chinese culture, politics, business, and its economy. Others might characterize themselves as just beginning to pay some attention to emerging Chinese influence in the world. If you're in that latter category, or close to it, don't let it bother you. For if I could paraphrase one of my former professors here at the University of Nebraska many years ago, he said, there are no experts on Asia, they're just degrees of ignorance. And that certainly applies to China too. So as a former geography undergraduate, and as a common starting point for the audience today, permit me to just begin by giving everyone a very basic set of facts and comparisons between China and the United States. And this should serve you, I hope, well for the next five lectures. Next slide. Note the similarity in latitude and the size of China and the continental United States. Eight. Next slide. They have nearly the same total, the 50 states of the United States, including Alaska and Hawaii, of course, and China. The one big difference is the quality of agricultural land. Some estimate that China has quality ag land of only about 7 or 8 percent, a much higher proportion of mountains and desert. And the U.S. has the largest amount of the most productive soils in the world, the Chernozem soils, which are shared by parts of Ukraine and Argentina. Next. Look at those bar charts. The United States blue, China red, 1.3 billion people in China. Every fifth person on the planet is Chinese. And yet, India will surpass it in population, according to projections, by the year 2020. And the one-child policy, which had been rigidly enforced for a period of time, and still is enforced, in effect, in many parts of China, now gives you a gender inequity, 116 boys born for every 100 girls. And that has long-term implications uh, for China and for perhaps its neighbors. We hope not. Next slide. China's population is heavily concentrated in the eastern third, Big differences in the West, the interior, and the coastal development. Next slide. Comparison of gross domestic product. While Chinese GDP doubles once every eight years, its exports and its imports have been growing at an even more impressive pace, roughly doubling in value every three to four years. Can you believe that? This poses both opportunities and challenges for China and for the rest of the world. During the past 30 years, China's annual GDP growth has averaged about 8%. Next, this shows you the disposable personal income per capita in 2008. I would note that uh, China does have some very wealthy people today, new wealth. In fact, the income disparity in China today is reported to be higher than the growing in income disparity in the United States. And China, as a government, is very wealthy. But you see the difference pointed out between urban Chinese, by their definition, and rural Chinese. Next. Now let's begin to look at China's trade with the world. In less than three decades, China has grown from having a negligible role in world trade to being one of the world's largest exporters, probably now the largest. In the past six weeks, it apparently has passed Germany to be the largest exporter, as well as a substantial import of raw material, immediate input, and other kinds of goods. Now, this tremendous growth is seen by some observers as posing a threat to China's trading partners. But since trade is not a zero-sum game, this growth in trade always brings some opportunities to both partners. In 2005 and 2006, the growth of Chinese net exports of goods and services had become 
for the first time, the major source of its economic growth. That's the first time in almost a decade. It accounted for one quarter of the growth of its economy during those two years, and perhaps this year as well. Here's a look, next slide, at the total merchandise trade of the big four trading countries in the world. The bottom, the green line, is Japan. The yellow line is Germany. The red line, which passes the yellow line, you notice, is China. And the fourth is U.S. Now, don't be confused. That includes imports and exports. And the United States is, of course, the world's largest importer, dramatically increasing. Next slide. China's merchandise trade with the world. Now, usually when we read about trade in the newspaper, it's really talking about merchandise or non-service trade. It doesn't include service trades. So here you have a look at Chinese Imports in red and green, the total exports. So the exports today, or at least in 2008, were about 1.4 trillion, imports about 1.1 trillion. Next slide. Here's where the exports of the Chinese go by the three major continental destinations. Nothing too unusual about that slide, but it will compare very shortly to something that is dramatic in the import sector. And that's one of the points I want to make tonight. China is importing heavily from its Asian neighbors. But here you see the Chinese exports are 37% of its total export trade. Uh, nothing too surprising about that. I'm sorry. That's... Here's the slide I want you to focus on. Slide 24, John, next. These are the Chinese merchandise imports. Here's one of the numbers I want you to focus on. 63% of its imports come from Asia. That's very significant. And it begins to explain what has happened to China's role as a global manufacturing platform. Next. The red line, of course, uh, is the uh, imports from North America and the imports from Asia in the red line. In about 2001 to 2002, you see a dramatic upward curve. And that's when things really began to change in terms of China's new role as a center of manufacturing. We'll come back to that point with some graphic examples of what's happening in terms of its manufacturing base. Next slide. Merchandise exports to the world for the Chinese and the U.S. And of course, uh, China has passed the United States in its, in its exports of merchandise and it now apparently, according to the Financial Times, has passed Germany. Next slide. Note the huge and growing U.S. merchandise import total in excess of $2 trillion, we are by far the largest importer in the world, even though the level of our imports is declining during the current recession. Next slide. Here you, we see the U.S. trade balances or deficits with our major trading partners. It's a total of about $800 billion. And suddenly, something is supposed to appear there. China fades in, and there it is. $266 billion deficit we have with China. And $176 billion with OPEC countries. Guess what that is? Shows our energy lack of independence. Now, this is, by and large, remember, this is the non-service sector. Anecdotally, about, it's said that about a fourth of all of the Chinese imports to the, exports to the United States go to Walmart. Next slide. U.S. merchandise trade balance with China. 
The U.S. exports are the green area. The U.S. imports from China are the red area, which gives us the $266 billion trade deficit. And you notice it's increasing. Next. The other side of the picture is services. You don't often see it uh, listed, but about 18, 19% of our exports are in services. And next slide, we actually have a little bit of good news there. We have a trade surplus with China when it comes to services. It's about $6 billion. Now, what are services where we're talking there about engineering, architectural information, consulting services, banking, insurance, and so on. And developed countries like the United States or the Europeans or the Japanese should have a significant surplus in services. They do have surpluses, but if we had a proper and timely enforcement of WTO on developing countries and a protection of intellectual property rights, it would give the U.S. and other developed countries an even larger surplus in services which would help offset of the deficit we have on merchandise. Next slide. Now, I thought you might be interested just, just uh, for stimulation here to look at Nebraska's exports to the world. I picked out only the four largest markets for our non-agriculture commodity exports. Five countries, actually. Nearly $3.5 in total Nebraska exports for 2008. Nebraska's top five export markets, Canada, Mexico. Not that much in Asia, especially not to China and the Republic of Korea. And Japan is the, is the fifth country mentioned. Next slide, our accumulative look at the totals of our non-commodity trade with our major trading partners, again, our two neighbors, much higher levels of Nebraska exports going to them. Uh, Canada, over a five-year period of time, 5.3 billion. Mexico, 3.8 billion. Then it drops to Japan, 1.3 billion, and even further down to China and South Korea. Important customers, by all means. Now, you look at what do we provide. I asked this to students today on the Ag Campus. If you eliminate the agriculture commodities, what then is our next largest sector that we export to China? Well, it's processed foods, about 56%. The news in the paper wasn't so good today. Did you read about it or hear about it on the radio or TV? We have a tit-for-tat kind of a situation with China on tariffs at the moment, and we may be exporting less chicken uh, to China, or at least chicken legs. I was surprised to find somebody eating chicken legs on the plane next to me the other day. It's not particularly my cup of tea, but somebody likes it. And next, it drops clear down to uh, machinery. I would guess a significant number, amount of that is agricultural machinery. Next slide. You saw this slide before, and I want to focus again on that 63% of imports because there's a big story behind that. Over 600 billion of imports to China in 2007 and growing rapidly, almost all from East and Southeast Asia. China has become an assembly point for manufactured goods. Uh, this is an important slide. Note on the bottom, that it says, uh, if you can't read it, East Asian, American, or European-owned plants produce over half of the Chinese exports today. So we have an interdependency of Asian countries, Southeast and East Asia, with the Chinese manufacturing base. And maybe the best way for me to help you understand what has happened so dramatically is to ask uh, John to bring up the next slide. And we're going to look at some conclusions of a recent uh, value-added study conducted on iPod, on Apple's iPod. The hard, this, is, this was on an iPod at the time that cost $299 in about 2007. Since then, the prices have dropped because of competition. But first of all, 
the hard drive comes from Japan. 400 other components come from Southeast Asian countries, a few other Asian countries. 16 parts from U.S. suppliers, making just a total of $15. Apple's profits, $75 at that time. Distribution of retail, $75 coming to the United States. And of that 299 Apple iPod, iPod, $2 was attributed to the assembly cost in China. So uh, we had, uh, in the conclusions recently done about this particular product, next slide. The biggest winner is Apple, an American company with predominantly American employees and stockholders who reap the benefits. The producers of high-value critical components capture a large share of the value. For the, uh, this version of the video iPod, the highest value components are the hard drive and display, both supplied by Japanese companies. U.S. suppliers provided the two most valuable microchips. So trade statistics, next slide, can be very misleading as much as informing. For every $300 iPad sold in the United States, the politically volatile U.S. trade deficit with China increases about $150, the factory cost. Yet the value added to the product through assembly in China is probably a few dollars at the most. So while Apple's share of the value capture is high for the industry, the iPad's overall pattern of value capture is fairly representative. I had an example from a few years ago about the, bar the ubiquitous Barbie dolls. And a far less sophisticated product, again, is just the final assembly that added almost insignificant amount to the Chinese export values, but it's listed totally as a Chinese export. Next slide. And I would like to mention the fact that in the manufacturing sector of exports in China today, foreign invested firms constitute over half of the manufacturing exports that leave the country. So a lot of what you have is intra-firm trade with, for an American company or a European company or a Japanese co company. And for most of the developed countries in Europe and the United States, the import levels from the other Southeast Asian countries have gone down or stabilized. But the volume of exports and the trade deficit that we therefore allegedly have, and to some extent we certainly do have with China, has soared because the product now comes through Hong Kong, it's assembled there, and it's exported through Hong Kong or Shanghai or other coastal ports, and it's listed as a Chinese export. Now it's time to look at the subject of China's growing soft power. Now Beijing uses a variety of tools to increase its influence in the developing world that include economic incentives and military cooperation. However, today's traditional soft power has also become a growing piece of how China acquires its influence. Next slide. Just to review this, this is what international soft power is. It's an ability to shape the preference policies and actions of other countries or other foreign publics. And it's through the values a country represents through its culture, its political ideals, its internal practices and policies, its international relations. Next category. Very briefly, you could divide the elements of soft power in these five categories. Political culture, uh, cultural and education generally, the, the human capital a country has and the way it uses it, uh, the diplomatic forces and how the diplomatic uh, assets are utilized, and finally, economic factors. Next slide. The political culture, we're talking here about the political brand, really, of a country, the values, the ideals, the norms, the political system meeting the needs of the people. Do they meet them or don't they? Uh, what's, the, what's the world's assessment of how well a country meets the needs of its citizens? The respect for human rights, and justice and respect for the rule of law. Next. Culture. And here's one I see all the time in our work in Southeast Asia. Uh, the cultural 
as it affects both popular and the elite audiences in that country. The general appeal of the culture, the importance or influence of its language, the influence of its popular culture, its media, prod, uh, its media products, its visual arts, and so on. What's happened uh, since the end of the Cold War? You recall the United States, or you understand that the United States ended World War II with a dramatic goodwill uh, around the world. And after the end of the Cold War, uh, the Congress and the executive, with full blessing of the American people in general, took the peace dividend. And we dramatically changed our soft power elements. A very unfortunate thing, in my judgment, the U.S. Information Agency was eliminated. Libraries that we operated abroad were eliminated. Our embassies, because of 9-11 and the aftermath of impact of terrorism, became isolated fortresses. Our, our personnel really don't get out of the embassies very often in some of the more volatile countries. At the same time, China has significantly expanded its exchange programs to include academic language and culture exchanges, political training for foreign governmental officials, media training for foreign news correspondents, and so on. With the goal of promoting Chinese languages and culture, China has opened more than 260 Confucius Institutes in more than 70 countries, and it plans to add another 500. Now, there's nothing wrong with China exert exerting its soft power. We have a Confucius Institute right here. I had lunch with them today. As long as, in fact, it is not used detrimentally against the United States, our only our only uh, response to that should be we need to do more of that ourselves to restore some of the prestige and influence of the United States, which has declined because of a variety of international issues of which you're all aware. So this can be a very positive thing, and I was impressed with what the Confucius Institute does here for Nebraskans and in the university students in particular. And by the way, this alma mater of this member uh, of the world community is doing, I think, a great job of internationalizing its program. So uh, these young Nebraskans and others who study here really have an opportunity to take advantage of the internationalization of business and so much of what is happening in the world. Next slide, and this is a continuation, really, of the cultural kinds of soft power. The availability of scholarships, fellowships, and hosted exchange programs and study tours, and sports and entertainment. To give you just a couple of examples of many, the number of foreign students studying in China has been increasing about 20% a year. Estimated at, was that 120,000 uh, were at Chinese universities, foreign students, and that's up from 8,000 uh, just 20 years ago. And most received scholarships or, or financial aid. Since the last 10 years, the United States has dramatically reduced its fellowships and scholarship programs, although the current proposals, which seem to have bipartisan support, would, would reverse that direction. Uh, South Korea. We trained huge numbers of South Koreans in this country in the 60s and 70s. In fact, the Asia Foundation was one of the organizations that brought Koreans and Taiwanese and Japanese to this country for advanced education, and we influenced the business and the political elite of those countries. Well, today, uh, there are 13,000 Korean students studying in China. They're matching the high point of our student enrollments from South Korea uh, during the height of our engagement with the South Korean public. Next slide. Human capital, education levels of population, quality of our colleges and universities, advanced science and technology. China's making improvements in all of those areas. It still lags behind the United States dramatically in this area and will, I think, in the foreseeable future. Next slide, diplomatic soft power. Well, here we're talking about, of course, government-to-government -government relationships, respect for sovereignty of other countries. And uh, next slide, the level of leadership and support of international organization. China has become much more engaged in international organizations. At the same time, we have given the message uh, that we are less confident that we ought to be involved in multilateral institutions. That is currently, I think, changing, and China is, in fact, in gaining more influence in those international organizations. In fact, they are now a participant in most of the Asian international organizations, 
whereas some of them uh, at this point do not involve the United States, either by choice or by the lack of opportunity. Next slide, economic soft power. Clearly the, pros the prosperity of a nation's economic system, its economic power, can attract other countries and cause them to adopt similar uh, economic institutions and policies. Today there's no doubt that China's growing economy is a major source of its increasing appeal in the developing world. Uh, next slide. The, the reputation of the business community, the business products and actions and practices, the economic opportunities for its citizens. Finally, just a few words, next slide, about China's foreign aid. I have a lot of detail here, but let me say that uh, only a couple things. The focus of China's foreign aid program today is very different than our own. It's very different than the developing countries of the world. Uh, they have a very strategic motive. In, in significant part, it is to, it is to secure uh, the mineral and petroleum base uh, from which their manufacturing role and their domestic economy demands those, that access. They are a country whose national government is very wealthy at this point, and so they're able to make investments to capitalize on those markets. We see the amount of Chinese foreign aid as being relatively minimal it's, it's in terms of what you can identify. It's not easily understood, it, but it has grown substantially, and its impact is disproportionately large. One of the very interesting things I see in for Burma, for example, where the U.S. citizens and corporations are are not permitted to be involved in Burma, or you may prefer Myanmar, uh, and it's in countries like that, and uh, in, in Cambodia, where we have some partial limitations on what Americans can do and what the U.S. government can certainly do, and places like Sudan and Zimbabwe, where Western countries where Japan are not able or not willing under their policies to make aid, you find the Chinese coming in. And the more authoritarian the African country, as you'll learn in a future lecture, the more they like the Chinese variety because it, does, it isn't conditioned with environmental studies or human rights issues and so on. And it's very quick. It can move in. Concessional loans which are often forgiven. But mostly I notice in Southeast Asia, that they choose very high visibility foreign aid projects. A major new office building, a new foreign ministry in Timor, a new cultural center in Phnom Penh, uh, infrastructure that's very, very visible and contributes to the economy of that particular regime and country. So those are the areas where they're really making a major statement in developing countries. And I think that uh, this is something that bothers uh, certain other developed countries because our aid continues to be conditioned and that's seen as the proper way to proceed. But there's a big contrast in that, in that particular way. They have a hybrid form, uh, too, of aid, and it oftentimes involves the Chinese export bank. Um, 30 billion was just made available this last Thursday, according to the Financial Times, for acquisition of a major energy company, as uh, 7 billion was recently made available to acquire a Chinese company. So if China can be said to have a de facto aid policy, the central theme in it would be to support China's net mutual trade advantages uh, with recipient countries. That's understandable, nothing wrong with that. It's just that they're very, very focused on that and do a good job. I think it's telling that the Chinese Ministry of Commerce and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs have an African policy, for example, that's centered on trade and investment promotion. They describe as a win-win for the donor and the recipient. Uh, the Chinese Development Bank is managing $5 billion China-Africa Development Fund established in 2007. China claims its aid is the most effective means of generating long-term economic development. And most loans are for natural resource development or for the energy sector, and they're using, and they're used for large infrastructure projects. 
An interesting example, too, is that many of their infrastructure products, projects are turnkey operations. The planning is done by the Chinese. They will come in. 70% of these projects are built with Chinese labor, or saying it another way, of the labor employed in these infrastructure projects, 70% comes directly from China. It's especially noticeable today in African countries. Next slide. The majority are channeled bilaterally. They typically don't use the multilateral development banks. And as I mentioned, China's Export-Import Bank is heavily involved in, in uh, selecting the targets and providing the resources to Chinese parastatal firms or, or so-called private sector firms. The loans are heavily tied. They require, for the most part, uh, Chinese goods and services to be used, something that we're not unaccustomed to because uh, the French have long done that among the developed countries. Next slide. I just want to point this out very briefly. The, uh, the blue bar charts show the amount in recent years going to Africa. The Latin American are the orange bars and the Southeast Asia ones are relatively small compared to the other two continents. So it's not all going to their neighbors by any means. Next slide, you see the major impact of their aid in all three continents is on natural resources, extraction and production, and secondly, on infrastructure. Next slide. Well, Chicago Council on Global Affairs, which is one of the preeminent organizations that looks at foreign issues and foreign attitudes about issues, I think maybe the best in the country, and they do it every two years, so you have some tracking there going on. They ask the question of these countries, United States, China, Japan, South Korea, Indonesia, and Vietnam, who will be the leader in Asia? And the yellow lines suggest the U.S., the China, of course, Japan, and so on, they think that China will be the leader in Asian countries in the future, Asian countries in the future. And the red beside it shows how many are satisfied with that. To the surprise, I think, of the Chicago Council, certainly to many people who looked at the uh, recent data coming out this past uh, six months, still the majority of these countries uh, still regard the United States as the preeminent model and the country they're most comfortable with and have a significant role in Asia. So uh, maybe you focus a little bit on the Japan total and you see the natural kind of, unfortunately, I won't say natural, the continuing uh, concern between the, the citizens of those two countries, which comes out of the World War II episodes. In a few minutes remaining, I want to go to my conclusions. I think while it is almost certain that China will become Asia's strongest country by any measure, it has very big inherent problems in things like increasingly severe environmental degradation. I think it would be a limiting factor on their growth. Minority unrest, rising coastal versus interior inequities, an aging population and demographic imbalance, local injustice and corruption, and as a matter of fact, the Asia Foundation is helping the Chinese government deal with some of these local corruption issues, and they're happy to have our help in that area. And we're interested in seeing if the Chinese citizens can have a larger voice in dealing with the corruption of local officials. So Beijing is, uh, has the same interest in we, that we do in some ways in this area, and everything we do is done in complete transparency with all of the countries in which we work. They have some difficulties in controlling the information technology demands of their citizens. Also, all of the, major, well, the world's major countries, I think China's political trajectory is perhaps the most uncertain over the mid to long term. It's also obvious that China has had 25 years of remarkable growth since the reforms initiated by Deng Xiaoping. There's no doubt that by and large, the Chinese people's lives are far better today in almost every respect than they ever have been before at any time in history. The pace of economic growth and certainly the pace of physical development in coastal China is stupendous. Literally, I believe, unmatched in the history of the world. If you haven't been there for two years, you can't believe what you see in changes in coastal China. 
So today, with this capitalist model of socialism and its authoritarian direction and control of its globalized influences, China has become one of the largest destinations for foreign direct investment and a vital production center in the global supply chain. Its national government has accumulated influence and massive financial resources to compete aggressively for the energy and mineral resources its domestic and its export activities demand, and to increasingly wield its influence on a regional and global basis. China today clearly understands the important role of soft power in its national power and development strategy. While its military improvements still lag far, far behind America's military power, even if asymmetrical tactics were to be utilized, Chinese leaders understand as well as Americans must that a country's influence doesn't depend only on military or even economic clout, but as Joe Nye says, on whose story wins. In other words, its influence depends increasingly on soft power and really on the, on the smart combination of hard and soft power. So I want to emphasize there is nothing unnatural or insidious in the Chinese attempt to increase its soft power or its influence by other means. And China's rising soft power does not inherently mean a decline in American soft power. It just isn't a zero-sum game. But plummeting American appeal or, or its reputation in the post-Iraq invasion period and the perceived shortcomings of the so-called Washington Democratic Economic Development and Regulatory Model in, is contributing to the appeal of China in its development path, the so-called Beijing model, and that ought to worry us. That is especially the case now that the American fingerprints with underregulated Wall Street excesses, failures in monetary policy, and huge budget deficits are the most prominently noted causes across the world of the current economic recession. We are blamed for that, and not without some cause. In his recent book on China's char char charm offensive, Joseph Kurlanitz voiced the obvious. He talked about the loss of American soft power and the big amount of goodwill that we had after World War II, and what, as I mentioned, how we sort of threw it away or took it for granted after the end of the Cold War. We took the full peace dividend instead of investing it. So what then is America to do to retain its world leadership status? and specifically due in response to China's economic influence and rising soft power. Well, looking at the big picture, of course, America needs to put its fiscal house in better order, build its energy independence by the diversification and efficient use of its own energy resources, halt and reverse the general relative decline in the educational opportunities for our youngest generations of Americans, and avoid any deterioration in its world scientific and technological leadership, to restore proper ethical standards and practices in the manner in which American institutions work and the way we treat each other. Those have to be among the big national objectives. But on the topic of the lecture today, and consistent with the recommendations of the CSIS Smart Power Commission, the U.S. in reaction to rising Chinese soft power should instead re-enhance its own soft power strengths and maximize the combined impact of its soft and hard power, of its soft and hard power in smart power. The U.S. needs to look afresh at its recent negative attitudes about multilateral institutions and consider anew whether its actions truly and clearly reflect the long-admired characteristics and ideals of democracy and human rights, the things that the world admired about the United States, and still do, if you scratch beneath the surface. On the other hand, it should not find an inherent threat in even those positive aspects of Chinese attempts to enhance their own international position by promoting its language, culture, and soft power generally. And I'd end my concluding remarks with one of my recommendations most strongly felt for enhancing America's soft power. That is to place a much more coordinated and stronger emphasis on American public diplomacy. It's crucial in my judgment that the U.S. government collaborate effectively with American business and nonprofit organizations, recognizing the best way to get our message across is directly to foreign populations 
rather than through the formal diplomatic channels. Greater goodwill, respect, credibility, and support for our country can be regained. Changes in policies and emphasis, they have their role. Some reorganization has its role. However, the primary reorientation of our soft power efforts must be to remind people abroad and to reinforce by example and their own direct experience what they and their leaders traditionally have liked and admired most about Americans and about our country. We've done that well in the past, and we can do it again. Thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to your questions and your comments. Thank you. Uh, before we receive questions from the audience, and let me encourage those of you in the audience who have questions to get a card from uh, ushers and, and write your questions down, and, and then uh, they'll be brought over and, and brought up to the stage so that we can ask those questions. Let me begin with a couple of questions that come from the uh, Thompson Scholars, which is a learning uh, community with, with which you uh, met earlier. Uh, one of the Thompson Scholars uh, asked, Considering the news of the recent U.S. Tariff, uh, tariff hike on Chinese tire imports, do you feel that China would ever react aggressively against the United States? In a trade sense, I suspect they will. Uh, I don't know the details of the recent uh, case brought by the United States uh, before the WTO, World Trade Organization, on Chinese tires. But I'm confident I know enough about the World uh, Trade Organization, but especially about the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, to know that we don't defend our rights sufficiently. And I would say my judgment is, even without knowing the details of the case, that was a proper action. And I think we should expect a Chinese reaction, which we saw today. And it may cause another cycle of reactions and counter-reaction, which is not in the best interest of both countries, but I do think that we need to protect our interests very strongly, that is to say the uh, impact of American business and their employers. And one of the problems we have in USTR, in my judgment, is that it's been under, uh, understaffed and we have a revolving door policy. And our people at USTR become so valuable, they're shortly lured away. We have one of the smallest, in some cases I think, least aggressive offices regardless of administration. So we're going to have some reactions and they'll be aggressive perhaps in their counter tariff. But that's the limit of the aggression that I would expect. Okay, a second question, and this gets you to uh, your own uh, Asia Foundation. Uh, where do you see the Asia Foundation going in the near future? We expect to continue most of our programs. Uh, we expect that we're going to continue to be asked to do a number of things that traditionally were not on our agenda in communist countries like Laos and Vietnam and China because they like what we're doing and because we do it with complete transparency. But I would think the largest area of growth, even though we understand there's competition in the area, is to do a more in the environmental area. As I mentioned briefly before, China has severe uh, air pollution problems affecting the health of its citizens. 95% uh, of its ground, urban groundwater is polluted. And behind it, uh, India has even greater problems. So I think in the interest of the world, uh, organizations like the Asia Foundation need to be much more active in assisting the, these countries develop their, their institutional capacity to deal with the problem. I believe China recognized the problem. They simply don't have the enforcement mechanism to enforce good laws they have on the book. A question from the audience. Uh, should we as Americans be worried about Chinese plans to increase their influence over South and Central American economies? I'd say it's a normal kind of response from the Chinese. Uh, and the United States needs to continue to be actively engaged and exercise greater economic and soft power. Uh, but you may notice that certain countries, a couple I can mention, Southeast Asia, are beginning to hedge their bets. And when you understand that there is now a mandate in Thailand that every child will have uh, Mandarin in, in the course of their activities, and we just see the huge number of Cambodians now receiving scholarships for education in Cambodia and in other parts and in parts of China, you understand that their influence is growing. And so uh, it is not a zero-sum game. 
We just need to be more, I think, active in making sure they understand what's best about America. And my response to the Confucius Institutes would be that we ought to be doing more in China to help them understand about Americans and what we believe in and what we feel. Are foreigners allowed to purchase real property, for example, land in China? I, I'm not absolutely certain. My, my best guess is the answer is no in most circumstances, but I don't know that that's a fact because that's not an area that I have much expertise. And, and the Asia Foundation has no activities in that area. But I would guess the answer is almost always no. Uh, will there be agricultural or water problems that will affect the Chinese economy? Yes, they have inadequate water supplies. They have the same water resources that Canada has in terms of out overall volume. Mm -hmm. They're a water-deficient country, and they will have not only water pollution problems even more severely than they have now, but they simply do not have enough water, and it will be the most important commodity in some ways for the future. And I do think, of course, as I mentioned, the air pollution problems today with perhaps over 90 of the 100 most polluted metropolitan areas being in China, it's affecting by their own statistics the mortality of their citizens. Uh, at least 300 to 400,000 Chinese die prematurely from air pollution every year according to their own statistics. This refers, I think, to one of the slides that you had. Uh, why was the amount of foreign aid that China provided to Latin America so different from 2006 to 2007? I don't know. I think it really relates to a, a single uh, or perhaps two major investments. And it may, could well have been in the copper industry of Peru, for example. I think one very large kind of investment or two very large investments in... in you notice it's not a continuous curve of upward curve in Latin America. It's very very much up and down, and it relates to very, very big, not infrastructure projects, but mineral development acquisitions. China has asked that the dollar be replaced as the world's primary currency. Do you think they will be successful? No, at least not in the foreseeable future, and that's an advantage that the United States has. But, of course, they're uneasy about that, uh, especially in light of uh, the significant amount of our U.S. Treasury securities that the Chinese government holds. It is by, by, interestingly, not the majority of the treasuries being held by foreigners, but it is the largest single amount. OPEC countries also have a lot of it. So do the British, so do the Canadians, and so on and so forth. But that's one factor where they will have their concerns, as you know. And if we become reticent in defending our own national interests because our debt is so high with continuous uh, large deficits, that's a major concern that we ought to have as citizens. Uh, the program guide and your introduction mentioned that uh, women's improvement is a focus of the Asia Foundation. Uh, can you tell us more about the problems at issue and how the Foundation is working to resolve them? Well, we work in political and and economic uh, empowerment for women in many of the countries, the 22 countries we're working in at the moment. Uh, we're doing that very much in Afghanistan. So in Islamic countries, uh, we are working on those areas for women's empowerment. And in some cases, we're, we're taking people from Pakistan and Afghanistan to understand how things are done in Indonesia or Malaysia, where you have majority Islamic populations as well. But do we do more work for the U.S. Agency for International Development on counter-trafficking or anti-trafficking of women and children in all aspects than any other uh, entity? And we are working for 11 other countries' development organizations in addition to the United States and the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and uh, the UNDP. And so some of those resources from those diverse programs go to help empower women. So we're training women to uh, take the college entrance exams in Afghanistan. We're training women how to run for office in practically all those countries, uh, including developed countries like the Republic of Korea, with some substantial impact. Uh, one question uh, refers to the title for your lecture about whether we need to worry. Uh, the question is, do we? 
we need to worry, in my judgment, about our own uh, inadequacies and about the sharp reduction in our resources devoted to soft power and the way we orchestrate our soft power. You know, we've had, in both administrations, someone who's in charge of public diplomacy who works in the State Department. Well, what the State Department does in public diplomacy is important, but when I looked at the eight commissions and committees and task forces that were created after 9-11, they all said the best resources, the best innovation comes from the American business sector and from NGOs. And you need to use that resources. And it's particularly important that you use it in Islamic countries, where you know you have the biggest problem at the moment. And because the U.S. government doesn't have a whole lot of credibility, certain organizations that have worked with them for a long period of time, as we have for 35 years in a number of countries, those resources can best be employed on a direct basis for the foreign publics. So it's a collaboration between government and the private sector, including the NGO sector, I think that can be most effective in addressing some of the concerns and lack of information and incorrect information about our country. And of course, we have to make sure that we live up to those ideals that we profess. What is China doing in the area of green development for their country? Can you give us some examples? Well, they, uh, as an authoritarian government, spent their stimulus money very, very effectively and very rapidly. And, you know, I fault our own stimulus for not having enough focus on off-the-shelf infrastructure development. As a person who used to serve on the Transportation Committee, I know that every highway department in the country, every DOT, has projects on the shelf that could have been implemented in short order, even in winter states. And so the Chinese have done that very well. And they're very concerned about the growing disparity between coastal China and the rest of China. There are 100 to 150 million rural Chinese that are working on temporary jobs in, in the construction and other sectors in coastal China. And this large population moving around the country creates some concerns on the part of the Chinese, especially if they're not treated well by their employers. Some of those employers, by the way, are foreign entities. I used to go through the American facilities, American plants in Southeast Asia, and I can tell you we employed the best corporate practice of any foreign firms in that part of China, South China. And I could tell you some things about those that employed the worst tactics. And so that's why the Chinese government is happy to have us working on labor issues, especially for Chinese, uh, Chinese women who are working in these factories uh, six days a week. Do you believe China can maintain a communist leadership and at the same time continue uh, its uh, capitalist uh, growth or its economic growth? Well, that's why I say that the political trajectory of China is the most uncertain of all the major countries on Earth. Uh, obviously, they have great resources to stay in power, and they are able to nationalize, they are able to generate a national, a nationalism uh, if necessary, to, to uh, help them sustain their power. But it seems to me that information technology makes things much more difficult for people who attempt to block out information. So they have an interesting kind of challenge before them. And I think one of the surprises that maybe some people would have if they looked at how things happen in China is that Beijing, despite its strong authoritarian center, is really not able to demand compliance by people in other parts of the China. And the farther south you get towards Guangzhou, the less they pay any attention to Beijing. So it's one thing to pass environmental standards or to do this or to, to say we're going to rigidly defend intellectual property rights. And even if they mean it, and even if they try to bring some enforcement, uh, they are roundly ignored. So uh, China has a, an authority, authority problem and they have, of course, as many countries do, a significant amount of corruption among local officials. We'll end with this question. In terms of U.S. dollars, how much do we owe China? What will happen to the quality of American life if China decides to cash in the U.S. government bonds that they now own? Don't lose any sleep over it. Uh, we're locked in a, an embrace. They need our markets. We need, unfortunately, them to buy our securities. 
They're not likely, I think, to buy a higher proportion. They may, in fact, reduce it slightly. They want to invest more in things important to their citizenry. But I don't think we can expect any precipitous action on their part. I wish I could give you the exact figure. I will just say, I can only say confidently, since I threw that slide out, I didn't have enough time <laughs> to cover it, uh, that they are the largest country holder of our U.S. securities, U.S. Treasury securities, but not the majority. The Japanese, the OPEC countries, and all the others combined have approximately 60 to 65 percent of the securities held. China would have probably 35 percent of the foreign ownership of U.S. Treasury securities. Please join with me in thanking Doug B. Ryder for the lecture. <laughs>